Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. If it's heavenly or herbaceous, grilled or glazed, juicy or julienned, marinated or mashed or mouth-watering in the least, if it is edible, you will hear about it here. A very good weekend to you food lovers, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If you have a taste for life, well, then this is your show, because every weekend I'm sharing mouth-watering radio commentary on everything delicious. I have the best culinary thinkers, authors, and experts that I highlight each show, Plus, I cover health and wellness, travel tech, wine, mixology, and more because it is my goal to feed your soul. This is your destination for delicious conversation, and I'll help you bring it all together from shopping to preparation, presentation, and cultivating your best and most delectable dishes. And there are no reservations needed, so I do hope that you'll tune in. You can always find my tasty podcasts on iTunes, listed under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen, if you happen to have missed a show. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. And my daily dish of shameless deliciousness is posted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. So let's kick off this show, shall we, with some delicious conversation. I don't know what it is about the cold winter months, but I crave comfort food, of course, and I crave loaf breads, and I dream of banana bread. So I thought that I would use my uh, kickoff here, as I do for every show, a tutorial of sorts, a technique to make you a better cook in your own kitchen when I uh, aspire to wax poetic at the start of this show every weekend. I thought we would master and make brilliant banana bread today. Now, I love banana bread. Maybe because I was raised on banana bread, my mom makes really delicious banana bread. It feels homey and comforting. And so I gave into my craving this past week. I I perfected because every time I make it, I change something just a wee bit. Uh, My tried and true recipe. And so I have a few secrets to brilliant banana bread and one incredible magic trick. So please keep listening. You want to start with very ripe, preferably speckled, almost black bananas when it comes to banana bread. And if you find that your bananas aren't as soft or sweet as you would like, you peel the bananas, you break them into chunks, and you place them in a microwave-safe bowl. Now, mind you, I am a Culinary Institute of America graduate up in uh, upstate Hyde Park, New York from a lot of years ago. And this is not a trick (laughs) that they taught in culinary school, nor during the time I spent in professional kitchens. If your bananas for banana bread are not as sweet or soft as you would like, you break them into chunks, peel removed, you put them into a microwave-safe bowl, and you microwave them in 30-second increments until they are warm throughout, and then you cool them before using. Now, the heat of the microwave actually compounds the sugars, and it assists in the aging process of the banana. And it really works well. It works wonders, actually. Now, if you happen to collect bananas that get overripe uh, with the hopes of making banana bread a couple of weeks or 
a month down the road. Um, then you do what I do. You freeze the bananas when they get overripe and they're no longer fun to eat in their fresh state. And um, so just so you know, that actually compounds the sugars as well. And it's a wonderful way to uh, collect bananas essentially for what will become very delicious banana bread. But if you're using frozen bananas, be sure to thaw them completely before you use them and place them in a strainer so that um, any of the condensation that accumulates drips away. You do not want watery bananas, by the way. Okay, uh, back to the technique. You can add depth of flavor and texture to your banana bread with the addition of a, a multitude of delectable ingredients. Like uh, peanut butter lovers, you should add a few tablespoons of peanut butter to the unsalted butter before you uh, soften it for a heavenly peanut butter banana bread. And mind you, yes, I said butter because I think that a zucchini loaf is wonderful with olive oil, but I think a banana bread is best with butter. You could consider swirling marshmallow fluff into the batter. That's very Elvis style, isn't it? I personally add coffee for depth of flavor and I make a chocolate banana bread and I think anything chocolate needs uh, a bit of coffee. Um, I like chopped dark chocolate and toasted walnuts in mine. Um, And then I take the chocolate dust from the cutting board that's left from chopping the chocolate and I sprinkle it on top for beauty's sake. And you most often see banana bread in a loaf pan, right? But here's an interesting fact about loaf pans. Did you know that there is not one uniform size? Rather, there are a bunch of crazy sizes that are only slightly different from each other. So you can use a variety of different size pans. You just want to adjust your baking time accordingly. And you start testing the breads for doneness using a cake tester or a toothpick about 10 minutes before you anticipate that they will be done baking. The crumb on the toothpick should come out dry when you test to assure that the breads are cooked through. And you want to make sure that the banana bread is no longer piping hot before you take your first bite because it takes the cooling process on a banana bread specifically for the gummy texture to dissipate. And now to the magic. I promised you a magic trick and here it is. My stellar recipe, and I say that humbly, but I do believe it's stellar, combines sour cream and baking powder, which creates a chemical reaction. When you combine those two ingredients, the acid in the sour cream activates the baking powder and it creates this very aerated mixture that when you add it to the batter, it elevates your banana bread to a whole new level. The reaction creates this cake-like crumb and this banana bread with deep banana flavor and plenty of moisture and this nice light consistency. And I really do believe that it is culinary magic. Now, the texture of a banana bread is best when it is uh, eaten warm from the oven, but cool, cooled first, of course. But, you know, as in same day Maybe later that afternoon, cup of tea, a little bit of cream cheese for a schmear. Oh, now I'm making myself hungry. But you can store the banana breads, by the way, covered tightly with plastic wrap. I think they last up to about three days for the best flavor. And of course, you can visit chefjamie.com for the recipe aforementioned, or you can email me and I will send it to you personally. My email address, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. It might just be the best dark chocolate banana bread that you have ever 
made or ever had for that matter. And yes, it is made with butter instead of oil. I think it is the top banana. And I use a stand mixer to make it, but you could essentially make it by hand. Wait till you taste it. It is really, truly scrumptious. Once again, the best dark chocolate banana bread recipe ever, email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. Okay, it's time for some food news this week. I have two exciting mentions for you to sink your teeth into. Well, one that you have to sip, but (laughs) all the better. It was just announced that this coming uh, summer, 2018, the first museum of candy ever will open in New York City. It is a 30,000 square foot museum and a grand attraction for sweet fanatics. It's called the Museum of Candy by Sugar Factory, and it will feature 15 experimental rooms, each with its own candy theme. There will also be a dessert marketplace with over 20 vendors. Okay, I'm all for that. A full service restaurant and an outdoor sugar factory cafe. And visitors will be invited to chow down on sweets, pose in front of the world's largest gummy bear, fun, learn about the history of candy, and watch various treats being made. The Museum of Candy, once again, officially opening this summer in New York City. So uh, expect your Instagram feed to get taken over by pictures of giant gummy bears in a matter of months. I think that's exciting. And I do have some vodka news for you. Hangar One is set to release a rosé vodka this summer. To create this totally new liquor, Hangar One is starting with its signature straight vodka, which is, by the way, distilled from grains and grapes. And they're combining it with a Northern California rosé blend of Petite Verdot and White Meritage. Like many rosés, Hangar One Rosé Vodka is said to have that floral scent with the notes of apple and peach and citrus. However, it has an acidic finish that is closer to what you'd expect to get from a sip of regular vodka. I can't wait to get my hands on some. So be sure to look for Hangar One Rosé Vodka and let me know if you see it before I do. And I will toast you, of course. And please don't touch your dial because there is lots more scintillating conversation coming up in your radio this hour. Up next, Mark Stevens is cooking with spices as he drops by. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, and there is lots more to feed your soul right after this. Making your dishes come alive with flavor every weekend. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Knowing how to balance flavor and spice, no doubt, transforms a dish. But whether you're looking to liven up what's already in the fridge, or maybe you're adventurous and trying something new, figuring out that just right blend of spices is a masterful technique. Cooking with Spices, 100 Recipes for Blends, Marinades, and Sauces from Around the World, the new cookbook release from Mark Stevens, sends your taste buds 
on a journey to make rubs and blends and sauces and pastes that will make your dishes come alive. Mark is here to dish, and I'm delighted. He learned to cook from his Italian mother and grandmother, and he's an alchemist of sorts. Uh, When he's not in the kitchen, he works on films and television shows as an assistant director. And yes, we loved Dallas Buyers Club, Mark. He's a resident of New Orleans, which means a cocktail or two is involved, so I like him more. And the book is really a fabulous tutorial to get to know your spices and to make dishes that really are full of extraordinary flavor. I'm so glad to have you, Mark. Welcome. Thank you. Thank yes, you so much, Chef, of course. Uh, Chef Jamie. And thank you for having me. Uh, congratulations. First book, a work of art. Um, and I think a really insightful education with a lot of wonderful history steeped throughout. So we'll start at the beginning. What is a spice by definition? What separates a spice from an herb or a mineral like salt, which is included in the book as well, is that while an herb is the leaf or at times the stem of a plant, dried or or fresh, the spice is derived from basically any other derivative of the plant. So root, seed, Mm -hmm. rhizome, uh, flower, bud, stick, um, (laughs) and it can be a pod, a stem, uh, such as star anise, and a, a pod in that sense. And they are toasted, roasted, crushed, grinded, pulverized, into powder or use toll to enhance the flavorfulness of our dishes. Yes. And while the definition doesn't have to be rigid, they all have a, a different category of sorts. And so I think that that lesson is a, an insightful sort of mindfulness that we need to use them all differently. Um, but they do need to be stored properly first in order to get the most out of them. So just if you would, a quick review for fine cooks everywhere. Uh, we always say dark, dry, cool place, right? That's correct. Yes. And um, you mentioned the freezer too. So yes, whole spices can be stored in the freezer. And it's all about preservation of flavor, right? So right. cool, dark places effectively hold the flavor longer and it's science in terms of surface area the whole spice has less surface area than the powder so oils will not evaporate and uh, dissipate as Mm -hmm. quickly you're talking for a powder six to twelve months Mm -hmm. for really flavor-packed country and then for whole spices it can only be anywhere from two to three years and you can crush them of course in a mortar pestle and mixer but the biggest thing is Sunlight is a no-no, heat mm-hmm. is a no-no, so oftentimes as improvisational chefs, we like to just open the spice package, uh, you should store it in a either glass or metal tin, and pour it right over your cooking uh, stove or whatever is on the burner, which is a huge no-no because that's all heat and all moisture just coming right up, and then you close the lid and that's all sealed right in there. And that can lead to a less flavorful spice quicker. Yes. So what I do is buy them in bulk and then separate them into metal or glass uh, mini containers and then put them away in a 
they store much, much longer. Very smart. I love that you allude to um, loving living in New Orleans as well. Or because because I trained there, I, I feel that I've earned the right to say Nolens. Okay. Okay. So Noted. in Nolens, um, the humidity being so high that you talk about uh, storing your spices in a bag of rice to try to resist clumping. And I think that's really smart. Absolutely. And it's, it's the old-fashioned way in, in moisture-ridden New Orleans that we fix our cellular phones as well. Right. For storing <laughs> them in rice. Uh, so it works for spices, too. You know, we grew up uh, doing it with salt. My mm-hmm. mom was a big proponent, and my friends would come over and be very confused as to why there was rice in the salt. Mm-hmm. But, it, again, it, it just allows something to take the moisture before it gets to the spice itself. Yeah, no, I, and I, I think it's a, a great reminder to, to, for all of us to do that. Um, we'll get to some of the recipes that create bold, brilliant flavor, um, but I want to pause at the teas that you speak to for your health. We know that these spices, many of them, have uh, very powerful um, antioxidants and health benefits. And so when it comes to infusions, uh, talk to us. Infusions are a great way to promote health and lesser things that we don't think about as often, like digestion or restlessness at night. And sometimes we don't associate that with being sick, but it's something that definitely can improve our day-to-day lives. And tea can get expensive, as anybody who hangs out with me knows. Uh, So (laughs) another thing you can do, most spice stores also sell herbs. And together they can make really amazing combinations. And you can just take a spare spice jar, combine them yourself, and then infuse your own teas based on your own needs. And I had a wonderful resource in this book called Healing Spices that sort of backs some of the medical information up with studies, and sometimes they are just trial studies, but it is something backed in science that can help you, and I tried to incorporate some of that into these uh, teas, and specifically one of them, which is a cold tea, it's called Dragon Fire Cider, which is sort of popular here in the South in some circles, and this stuff is a nuclear bomb to whatever sickness is going on inside of you. Hmm. As soon as I feel anything coming on, I take it like emergency. My friend here in New Orleans makes it. She's a farmer and provides me a ample dosage, and I just take a teaspoon in the morning, teaspoon at night, and it just cleans you right out. Uh, the unfiltered apple cider vinegar also helps with that, as yes. does the horseradish. <laughs> and then, yes. uh, of course, the, the turmeric, which most people are familiar with from a beneficial standpoint, which I think we're going to talk about here in a bit. Yeah, anti-inflammatory, of course. That tea has it all. You say it wards off colds. I, I would think it wards off vampires, too. <laughs> um, but it's um, onion, ginger, turmeric, horseradish, burdock root, dried hibiscus in an unfiltered raw apple cider vinegar base. And I'm all for the homeopathic approach. And if it does clean you out and if it, you know, at the first sniffle makes you feel better, then why wouldn't you taste it, drink it, you know, make it a daily ritual? 100%. And, and it wakes you up. I mean, it's just getting like a punch right in the, yeah. right in the gut. I it's could great. imagine. Mark, please pause there. We'll take a quick break. More cooking with spices right after this.
We're back and we're dishing Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with author Mark Stevens, his new release, Cooking with Spices. Let's talk uh, roasting and toasting for a moment. Give us a tutorial because I think the the heat we expose our spices to, specifically like for a, a dry rub, I'm always toasting the spices first. The oils release, the aromatics come out. I think that you get such better intense flavor. Do you agree? A thousand percent. Okay, good. Uh, if, if a thousand percent can be a percent, then absolutely. Yes, a thousand is, percent is a percent. <laughs> it, it creates a whole other level, several levels in terms of some spices to what is happening with the flavor of your spice. And, and some spices, I think it's absolutely necessary. Like, do not use the spice unless you roast it and toast it. Asafoetida is one of those that comes to mind. Another is fenugreek. Mm. And... It brings this earthy, smoky, often vibe to the spice, and it really can open it up in a really beautiful way. And some spices need longer than others. Certainly some of the smaller spices, like anise, will be much shorter than, say, sesame seed or something. However, you can just put it right in the pan. It only takes one to five minutes tops, and as soon as you start to smell the change you can take it right off and it's so easy half the time you don't even need oil or anything like that and highly recommended yeah i think oftentimes it's the only way to go mark would you teach us to make a homemade chinese five spice blend please sure so five spice blend is something that's very common you'll see it obviously in china but all over southeast asia and specifically in vietnamese food so it's Mm. good to have on hand and it's nice to make your own as well because it can cost a pretty penny if you buy it pre-mixed in the store. So um, you will want to set aside Mm -hmm. some star anise, some cinnamon or cassia, whichever you may have, uh, fennel seeds, cloves, and if you can get your hands on them, some Szechuan peppercorns. And if you can't, Regular peppercorn or a mignonette blend of peppercorns will do. Will work just fine. Can you go back for a moment? Kasha versus cinnamon. We're seeing a lot more kasha. I think that this, I think 2018 is the year of cinnamon. Just just forecasting my, you know, my food forecast for the year. But I think cinnamon's going to have its day. Do you have a preference over the two? Uh, I do not. I tend to lean on the kasha side, which is most of the time when you're buying cinnamon here in the U.S. It's what you're buying. It's a little bit sweeter. Mm-hmm. And in some countries, they actually have to distinguish between kasha and cinnamon on the label, which is known as Ceylon cinnamon. Right. And I, I prefer kasha myself. And right. luckily enough, that's probably what you're buying. Yes. And, and I will search it out. If there are a choice or a variety of cinnamons, I look for the Ceylon. I like that sweeter uh, hint to offset the bitiness. Uh, I think it's just beautiful. And so this is a toasty roasty recipe. This is, yeah. Throw Yay. them all in there. <laughs> Give them a toast. Watch, watch them. Of yes. course, they're going to they're gonna toast at different times. And then when you get them out, put them into your... I have two different coffee grinders, one for coffee and one for cinnamon. Before that, all of my coffees tasted like chili peppers. <laughs> and so throw them all in there. And you have Chinese spice five-spice blend. And the nice thing about this one is you don't have to pulverize it down into a really fine powder. It's, powder, it's nice to have a little bit of, of chunks in there, of yes. this or that, and then yes. when you put it in, whatever you're cooking, it'll thin out. 
oh, and, and I want to crust a big, beautiful piece of ahi and just sear it to perfection and make an Asian slaw with toasted cashews and ginger dressing. And you want to come over for dinner? Yeah, will you call me that night? Yes, I will call you that night. I promise. <laughs> I'll call you in advance so you can jump on a flight. Um, I think I could very easily glaze that um, ahi steak with South Pacific honey paste as well if I really wanted to amp up the flavor. Um, and I love your recipe for, you call it a marinade, but it would really make a gorgeous glaze as well. Oh, absolutely. And I am a sucker for honey. I just mm. think it is the most magical flavor, and I have way too much of different kinds of it in my cabinet. Yes. So you'll see a lot of honey in the book, but I feel like spices just bring so much to offset that sweetness that you talked about. Mm-hmm. And so some black peppercorns, some chilies, uh, some cloves, Kaffir lime leaf not the easiest thing to find, but you definitely can with just a little bit of research online or your local spice store. Some Thai ginger, or what's known as galangal, and ground ginger, lemongrass, mint, salt, and honey. And again, you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a lover of the, the toasting because this is another one where you're going to toast the peppercorns, chilies, cloves, and then grind them all up with the lime leaf and then uh, combine them all. And then melt down the honey and then put it all together mm. and nice. you, have a, you have a sort of a magical Asian dish. And you also picked up on something I tried to do in the book, which was allow recipes in the book to influence later recipes in the book. So if you're making one, you're able to make others and you don't buy just one spice and then leave it in your cabinet for two years and not see it anymore. Right. And we appreciate that, by the way. Thank you. We really do. Uh, let's talk uh, one of what I think is an extraordinary topper, a finisher, a very elegant, impressive kind of uh, wow your guests in all of its simplicity kind of sauce. Um, and of course, from the Americas, uh, we make a chimichurri here. There's something brilliant about that, you know, bulk combination of fresh herbs and I call it a garden sauce because I tend to go out and pick what I have and my chimichurri always tastes a little bit different and that's what I love about it I love that description of it it's <laughs> sort of exactly the spirit of it too and I picked this sauce up backcountry hiking in Patagonia and ended up in Bariloche which is the hometown of a hero of, of mine and many others Francis Malman Mm. and was treated to some amazing dinners by some, some local friends there. And I took that and threw a, a ancho chili in there because I like a little bit of heat. Nice. Optional for the reader, but um, I can't get enough of it. And I love it with a lot of parsley. Yes, me too. And mint and tarragon. But you can preferentially dole those out as you see fit, right? If you like one more than the other. And we also here like to throw some pickled onions, go down to the local Hispanic market and get some of those pickled onions that they soak in chilies. I'm loving that. There as well. Oh, I'm so loving that. Healthy amount of olive oil, salt and pepper and lemon juice. And, right. and you've arrived, you grill a, sm- a steak on some open open fire coals and mm. throw that on top. There's nary a guest that will leave disappointed. Leave us with this. Do you have a, a favorite spice? One maybe new, different, um, not well-known that we can all learn, aspire to, or 
incorporate into our dishes for that, you know, 2018 uh, fresh approach to flavor? I actually do. It's really funny that you asked that. It is sumac. I love sumac. I've developed a healthy obsession with sumac through the course of writing this book. And most people will think, like, poison sumac? And it's, it's a relative of that. And it's used heavily in Turkish and Middle Eastern and North African Maghrebian cuisine. Mm-hmm. And if you're in Europe after a late night and you get a kebab, they'll ask you if you want some sumac on it. But it is this pungent, tart, lemony, but also flowery spice, and it's purple and beautiful. And I have yet to find an occasion that I just don't absolutely love it. You use it, it in everything, everything. So are you using it in a marinade? Are you using it in a rub? Do you use it as a, like we would as a finishing salt? Uh, I, have a, I have a shaker on the table. You and do. And I just put it on whatever comes out. Oh, that's just uh, so the, Turkish. I love it. Yeah, at the end, uh, I put it on eggs this morning, uh, <laughs> hamburgers, and love anything it. the occasion calls for. I tend to think it, it comes in at the end. You're going to lose a lot of flavor if you cook it. Hmm. However, it is, it is a wonderful component to my kitchen. I love it. You couldn't have left us with a, a better tip or trick. So thank you. Sumac it is. Mark, I would like to continue to explore regions with you and savor spices. So you will come back, right? It would be my absolute pleasure. Thank you. I'd love to have you. So you will hear Mark C. Stevens here again. Uh, I'm going to, um, I- I'm going to mark him as our resident spice expert. Um, I'm crowning you, Mark. And I feel so uh, honored. Yeah, well, yes. And so you've been kinged, or however you'd like to put it. Um, and we're going to share more of Cooking with Spices, the new cookbook release from Mark C. Stevens throughout this year. And your dishes are going to come alive with flavor. So first things first, if your dried spices are in the cabinet next to the stove, move them and get ready because Mark C. Stevens is going to enlighten us to more truly scrumptious flavor. Mark, always a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your passion, and uh, I'll meet you back here soon. All right. See you in New Orleans, Jamie. I'll see you in New Orleans. Thank you. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll be right back. Insightful culinary conversation abounds in your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. There is a fascinating new read set to release, of which I got a sneak peek, from Dr. Rachel Herz, a neuroscientist who teaches at Brown University and Boston College that explains human eating habits Uh, the term being touted as neurogastronomy. It's a new field of study that explains so much about food-related behaviors, and the book is absolutely intriguing. It's titled, Why You Eat What You Eat, and it boons insights that bring a better understanding for our love of food, and I am delighted that the author, Dr. Rachel Herz, is here to dish. I'm glad to have you. Hi, Dr. Herz. Hi, Jamie. It's great to be here. (laughs) Well, thank you. Congratulations. The book is getting... Getting lots of uh, advanced 
uh, clout, I should say, um, because I think our love for food definitely deepens that fascination of, as you titled it, why we eat what we eat or why you eat what you eat. But this term neurogastronomy is a new field of study, yes? Yes, it started by Gordon Shepard, who is a physiologist at Yale University, who first wrote about it in a nature paper in 2006, and then he Mm. wrote a book called Neurogastronomy in 2012, which explains how the brain creates flavor. Okay, so this concept of neurogastronomy is not only you speak about in the book, the way brain creates flavor, but how we perceive it, right? So at the heart of your research your mind plays an incredible role in how you eat. Absolutely. So the book really has two major prongs. One is all the sensory characteristics that go into our perception of food that we may not be aware of. And the other is more of the psychological and the neuroscience side of things and how things like labeling, the number of people we're with, the occasion when we're eating and so on, all of those things can go into manipulating our experience of food and even the consequences of eating it things that people may have no idea about. I found it absolutely intriguing to read of your research. Uh, Very specifically, can we talk about the candy bowl effect, please? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, this is something that I personally practice, which is do not leave your candy bowl beside you if you want to not be constantly eating and discover that the bowl is empty when you get up from your desk or wherever you're sitting. And so this was research which showed that if you keep treats nearby, you will eat much more of them than even if they're just, you know, four or five feet away. So basically capitalizing on the fact that we're all somewhat inherently lazy and that if we actually have to expend some energy, like get up and go somewhere to get a Hershey's Kiss or whatever the case might be, (laughs) we're going to be less inclined to do it than if it's just sitting right in front of us. So the key is to keep your candy at more than arm's reach. And also another trick in connection to this is that if your candy is in a bowl that you can't see through, that is to say you can't see that there's candy in it, even though you may know it, it's less of a lure than if you have a transparent, let's say, glass bowl and you see those chocolates sitting in there, because that can help motivate you to actually get up and walk across the room. Okay. But keep your candy far away and in non-translucent bowls. I love the fact that you speak to the interplay of the environment and pleasure and, and how it affects us. Because for those of us who, at the heart, truly love food, and I say it often, Dr. Hers, love to cook, love to eat. I mean, it's, it's how I show love. Uh, you don't always realize its extraordinary influence. And I also love to cook and especially love to eat. And I think that food really is about love. I think that, you know, we need to be able to enjoy and take pleasure back with food and not be afraid of it and not have all sorts of guilt and other emotions surrounding it. We need to be able to understand all the mechanisms that go into our relationship with food. And Mm -hmm. that's what I'm hoping this book will do so people can take back the meal and be able to put themselves in control and really get more pleasure from eating. Absolutely extraordinary research. It's a wonderful read. Congratulations to you. No doubt with uh, new discoveries and insight as to why you eat what you eat. The title of the new book, um, a very much anticipated release from Dr. Rachel Hers. These facts and many more explored in why you eat what you eat. If you're looking for a, a better 
understanding, stop and consider why you eat what you eat and the science and psychology of eating. Uh, It is a a must read for sure, available for pre-order on Amazon now and in bookstores. You can learn more about Dr. Rachel Herr's research at rachelherz, H-E-R-Z dot com. Dr. Herz, thank you. Always a pleasure. Really fascinating, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration. If you're hungry for beautiful food, remarkable wines, and juicy conversation, then I hope that you'll tune in every weekend. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. I have a breakfast treat for you. It's a quick fix and I love it. And with grapefruit season here, always uh, during the winter when the weather turns cooler, it's a wonderful way to savor the best citrus. It's a broiled grapefruit with shredded coconut. And yes, I love anything brulee, like creme brulee with that sugary top is beautifully transformed to a breakfast treat. When you start with a large grapefruit, And you can use turbinado or um, any kind of rough ground sugar. Um, Honey works, agave works well too. Um, And then you need a couple of tablespoons of shredded coconut. You can do this actually um, with a fire starter, you know, with a... um, with a fire gun, or you can preheat the broiler of your oven and put an oven rack on the top rung closest to the broiler, uh, or of course, pull out your kitchen blowtorch. And you cut the grapefruit in half and you run your knife around the inside edge. You separate the flesh from the pith and you individualize or separate every grapefruit segment, making it easier to eat. And then you spread a thin layer of whatever sugar of choice that you uh, have chosen, whether it's that turbinado honey, agave, or otherwise, over the top of the grapefruit, place it on a baking sheet, and either broil or kitchen blowtorch it until the edges are all brown and caramelized and delicious. And then let the grapefruit cool for a few minutes, sprinkle it with shredded coconut, and indulge. Oh, it's such a delicious breakfast. And I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll also meet you here next weekend when there is lots more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well,